I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. As our second trimester draws to a close, we are somehow confronted with the reality that the final leg of the school year is upon us. Talk about how disorienting the passing of time can feel sometimes. Indeed, in some ways, it seems like our episodes on what reconnecting to a more normalized vision of school and life would look like were recorded and dropped weeks rather than months ago. Instead, we find ourselves at the start of the third trimester, and this moment in time affords everyone in the parish community a chance for a reset of their own to assess where they are at this juncture in the school year and make course corrections they feel will help them to flourish in the remaining months of the school year. Of course, we have pondered the notion of a reset across our recent episodes, both resets in the world of education and the grand reset that was Parrish's grade level expansion in 2002. Last month, Parrish's Director of the Center for College and Life Planning, Sarah Kramer, joined us to explore substantial changes to the college application and admissions process that have occurred during the period of the pandemic. These issues are of such import to the educational experience pre-collegiate students have today, though, that I thought a continuation of the discussion would be helpful. As such, I am excited to welcome Heath Einstein, Dean of Admission at TCU, to the From My Angle podcast. By dint of both his professional and personal background, Heath is perfectly positioned to further our thinking about how college admissions may or may not have reset as a result of the pandemic. Professionally, Heath offers a compliment to the perspective shared by Sarah in our February 7th episode. While we will cover similar topics with him, Heath's immediate past lens views topics such as the changes in standardized testing and the operations of admissions offices from the higher education rather than the high school perspective Sarah offered. But Heath knows independent schools. For having arrived at TCU in 2012, he spent eight years as an independent school college counselor himself, including here in Dallas at Hockaday. Personally, Heath is now the father of an upper school student himself. His daughter, Eleven, is a freshman at Parrish. So in just a couple of years, he too will be navigating the college selection process as a dad, certainly the other side of the desk from where he now sits. So enjoy this conversation with Heath Einstein as we consider the resets in the college admissions process. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle podcast. We are excited to be starting this third trimester, heading for the home stretch. As hard as it is to believe this year, we've talked about reconnecting and resetting. And in our recent conversations around resetting, we've taken up the topic of education in general, changes we have seen as a result of the pandemic and some that may stay with us and some that may not. But in our February 7th episode, we honed in specifically on the topic of college admissions, one of great interest to many listeners from my angle, and spoke with Sarah Kramer from Parrish's Center for College and Life Planning about the perspective on this issue from the lens of the high school. But I wanted to go out to a friend and colleague who could give us a peer uh, look at this from the other side of the desk, that of higher ed. And so I'm so thrilled to have Heath Einstein, the director and uh, dean of admission at uh, TCU with us today. 
He is also the father of an upper school student, Levin, a freshman at Parrish. He'll be going through this as a dad in the not too distant future. <laughs> so he's got multiple lenses on this. Heath, I'm so thankful you for coming today. Thanks for spending a few minutes to talk through the resetting college admissions. Absolutely, Dave. I appreciate the invitation and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it'll be fun and great to have you. So uh, I like to have our podcast get, guests dig in about how they most readily, readily and comfortably identify themselves to a stranger. Uh, you're an administrator in higher ed, a former independent school uh, counselor, having worked at Hockaday, for example, here in Dallas, a dad, a husband, a Californian, a Lakers fan. We were just talking about Shaq and uh, a, a run-up visit you had with him back in the day. So how does he Einstein most comfortably identify himself when he meets a new group of people? It's such an interesting question, Dave, um, the way you sort of framed it, because I think with any of us, um, there's the me that you see, mm -hmm. and then there is the me who sits just below the surface, and what you see might differ based on the setting you're in. So if I'm at a parish function, right. it's pretty clear I'm a dad of a student. Um, if I'm at a professional conference, it's pretty clear I'm a college administrator. Um, so, so the hats that we wear are, are, are different. Um, the pieces of my identity that I think I most um, readily fall on if I'm, if I'm in a, a, a setting of people, whether they're people I have known for a while or, or even new, uh, are new people, in addition to the ones that you have mentioned, uh, I still am a Californian by blood, even though I haven't lived there for 28 years now. Um, I think those identities that most inform my thinking are that I am Jewish and, in fact, the, um, the son of a rabbi. And if you grow up in, in a rabbinic household, then um, Judaism almost by default will just sort of permeate your thinking. Um, and, and then I think as a corollary to that, my, I have this um, sense of, of social justice um, that very much um, impacts the, my worldview. And, and, and those are the identities that I carry with me. And, and when I meet new people, it comes out pretty clearly. Yeah, I love those. And uh, very interwoven, clearly the social justice element, I'm sure uh, very much a foundation of your home and the commitments uh, taught by your, your, your teacher, your teacher, dad, your, your, your rabbi dad, which is really yeah. cool. Um, I had a dad who was in education for many, many decades. So I know what it's like to live in the household of one who convenes community, right? And it's yeah. sort of ever see, always seen and ever present in the world in which you exist as a, as a youth. Um, and so it, uh, it's an interesting, an interesting phenomenon for sure. So I decided that many of the questions that I explored with Sarah, I would do so with you as well, because they are literally, they're, they're seen from different lenses or perspectives, right? The sending institutions and mm -hmm. schools and administrators, and in your case, the, the receiving administrator uh, and, and universities and schools. And I think this first one is a really particular one in which what we know on our side, the sending side, is probably a lot different than what you know and understand from your side, because there's levels of transparency and operations at higher ed that we just don't have exposure to. And that really stems from the Varsity Blues scandal, which exposed lots of elements of the ugly underbelly of college admissions process, for sure, and the pressures that I think we'll get into a little bit for high achieving families and students. But when Sarah and I talked about this, we realized that, again, unbeknownst to us, there are likely a series of process controls 
that you're hearing about broadly, not just at TCU, but really, again, from your connection to other industry leaders that are being implemented to minimize the potential for uh, the reoccurrence of such behavior. So talk to us about what the in industry uh, conversation is uh, around controls and mechanisms post-Varsity Blues. Well, I'm always quick to point out when Varsity Blues comes up as a topic of conversation that it is an athletics scandal, not an admission scandal. I love and, that. And, and, yeah. and I, it, you know, I say that partially tongue-in-cheek, but in fact, nobody who works in the field of college admission was indicted, um, whereas we saw coaches all over the place um, and other athletics officials who were, um, uh, who were uh, brought to justice. Um, so you're, you're exactly right. Um, there exist loopholes in the system that, and that was exposed by, uh, varsity blues. And part of this is an understanding that whether it's athletics or any other partners we have around campus, that there is an element of trust that is built over many years and, upon which some of these systems rely. Um, we are fortunate at TCU to have a relationship, a really positive relationship with our athletics department. Um, we have a fantastic director of athletics, uh, Jeremiah Donati, and he's got an incredible team. Um, and we have upstanding coaches we believe in and we trust. And, and, um, but that doesn't mean that you don't plan for um, the, the pitfalls and, and try to mitigate risk where, where possible. Um, so in the immediate aftermath of that Varsity Blues, um, uh, the article that came out and, and the subsequent um, um, legal uh, battles, we had a conversation with our general counsel, mm -hmm. with representatives from athletics and here in admissions and compliance to make sure that what we were doing was um, on the up and up and that we were not going to be subject to the same sorts of um, depraved behavior that had been exhibited on, on other campuses. Um, the other thing that we did was we thought through what are other similar processes that this sort of thing could happen to mm -hmm. where this sort of thing could happen. So one that immediately came to mind is fine arts, the, the finer performing arts. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about um, the students who are looking at going to college for music or theater or dance at a really high level at a, and at TCU, we have conservatory style programs whereby students need to audition to get in. Um, you have the potential for something very similar. Right. And what you saw with Varsity Blues is it wasn't in football and basketball, these revenue generating sports that would easily catch the eye of people. It was in the sports where we where, where people felt like, well, we could we could sort of sneak something by because nobody's really looking at our rowing team. Right. Um, and similarly, um, arts being not exactly revenue generating for universities, uh, we thought this might be another area of potential risk. So we set about creating systems where 
significant oversight was present so mm-hmm. that it wasn't just a coach saying, here are the students we think might be good fits for our team. And then we had that in mind as we were going through the admission process, but we actually had to have, we have to have sign off by several layers of individuals before we're going to go ahead and look through that lens. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love that you talk about partners across the university. We have them here because our admission system in, in miniature replicates yours, whether it's uh, legacy families or families who have uh, potential to impact the community philanthropically, artists, athletes, you know, the list goes on. And so setting up those systems like that uh, along the different avenues of partnership, which all differ, right? How it works in athletics differs from how it works in the conservatory in your case um, is, is really interesting. And I suspect in a case like this, as it would for us at Parish, just the fact that it happened has heightened everybody's awareness and it is given a reason to have conversations, critical conversations with head coaches or with directors of fine arts or with your administrators in respective schools as to how these processes have to work in a healthy way. And that in and of itself, I think, has probably been in your industry across the board, um, a positive thing. Yeah. It, I mean, it really shook us to the right. core. Right. And I mean, I immediately was texting <laughs> my counterparts at the That's schools right. where, where what are you doing yeah and and, and and what i got back was just shock i mean yeah. these these people who were in my shoes at other institutions had no idea this was happening and were completely floored by it um and and i think it's important to note while this got a lot of attention and deservedly so the vast majority of students who are being admitted to institutions are doing so through normal channels processes um and and at a place like tcu i mean our students who uh, our student athletes make up a very small percentage of all of the um undergraduate students at at tcu and then if you think about the you know at a similar school where where the scandal hit um you know we're talking about a couple of students within a a university of tens of thousands but but because it got so much attention i think there's an assumption out there that well, if I'm not doing something untoward, then I'm probably not putting my student at, in an advantageous position, which is unfortunate. Right. Yeah. And as we jump back and forth, the riverbank sides here, the, the Sarah and I talked about this really for the for the sending school and even for the applying families, a large preponderance of them, varsity blues, though it occurred during the pandemic, really has will have very little long term impact on their experience of applying to and being accepted to colleges. It's really much more on the back end, the system changes that um, schools like yours and, and uh, will be will be making and much more just signifying at a larger level symptomatically the fact that parents are climbing all over each other with anxiety, um, mirroring their kids to get into places like TCU uh, for the programs that they offer. And this segues to this next question, really this last 15 years, I get kind of the last third of of my career in schools when uh, it predated the pandemic, but was accelerated by it to, to a great degree, the exponential growth in application rates uh, and precipitous drop in ad- admissions rates um, have been seen. And wow, is it ratcheted up the anxiety surrounding the process. And so I've talked about the drivers of this in previous podcasts, and there are innumerable ones from the Common App and digital application processes mm-hmm. and, and college placement list uh, 
U.S. News and World Report lists um, fixations. But summarize, if you will, for our listeners, what you've seen from your level is fueling the change in the number of applications that are flooding admissions offices like yours. Yeah. Um, well, you touched on a couple of them, but but I yeah. want I think I'll start with some hard data uh, because there are some pretty significant demographic explanations for for all of this. Um, there is um, an organization called the Western Institute. Uh, sorry, the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, WISHI. You're probably familiar with their work. And they, they study this stuff. And um, every, every few years, they come out with, uh, with a report that helps enrollment leaders sort of predict or project what might happen. And they look back at data over a number of years and, and, then, and then look forward. Um, the number of high school graduates has gone up significantly over the last generation. So in the in the mid 90s, we're talking about maybe two and a half million uh, graduating seniors in a given year. Um, whereas 15 years ago, we get to 3 million graduating high school seniors a year. And in the next couple of years, we're going to get to 4 million graduating high school seniors in, in a year. Before um, we see after that, like right around Levin's class, a pretty precipitous drop. That's exactly right. right? So, which is a, a, a very interesting conversation altogether aside yep. from this one. Yep. Um, on top of that, there is a higher percentage of students who are graduating from high school and ch choosing to go on to college. So between the years 2000 and 2018, the percentage of students who entered college went from 63% to 69%. So we have more students graduating and a higher percentage of them who are enrolling in college. Okay, so now you couple that with the ease of applying, because back when you and I were applying to college, you know, you, I remember we had to call the admission office or send them a letter to say, hey, I'm interested in your school. Can you send me your application, which I then stuck in a typewriter and filled out. And now with the common application and other applications like it here in Texas, we have Apply Texas. There's mm -hmm. the Coalition for College. These are member applications to where a student can fill out an application once, send it off to all of the schools and do it, as you mentioned, digitally. So it's, it's really, really easy. And that growth shouldn't be minimized either, even in recent years. So in the 2014-15 academic year, the common application had 457 members. Just six years later, in the 2020-2021 academic year, there, are nine, there were 914 member institutions. That's a 67% increase in common app members in six years. So it is just easy for students to apply to college. Now you mentioned this, what people in my industry are calling an enrollment cliff that we're about to see in the year 2026-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that it's an actual cliff because a cliff would suggest there will be no students. That's not the case, but there is going to be a decline in the number of students who are going to college merely by virtue of demographics. Right? demographics. Yeah. The, yeah. the great recession hit in 2008, 2009. We saw a right. decline in birth rate, which is what typically happens when we see economic calamity, unlike periods in the past when the economy rebounds, we did not see a massive increase in birth rate after that. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to have a, a little bit lower, um, uh, lower entering 
class of students um, writ large. Now, what that means for any one institution is going to is going to differ drastically. And so there is um, a, a book that came out about four years ago now called Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. You might have read it. You might have even talked about this in a previous podcast. Uh, an economist by the name of Nathan Graw from Carleton right. College Carleton, wrote yeah. this. Mm-hmm. And everyone in my world read it. I mean, okay. it's like, you know, uh, it's sort of like the Bible for how we're going to move forward. And, and it, it, made, it made an interesting case for um, a set of colleges that are going to be just fine. A yeah, set of colleges. Especially those in Texas, like yours and SMU, yeah. where everybody's moving, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, Not great for Hamilton College, where, you know, I went up in, up in upstate New York. It says well, basically about where the students are going, right? Hamilton, one of my favorite schools in America. I'm happy to know that you went there. Um, beautiful, beautiful campus uh, in Clinton, New York. And um, Hamilton's going to be fine. Yes, they are. You know, but it's going to be the um, the smaller liberal arts schools that don't have the reach of a Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the regional places. And it's mm-hmm. going to be places, a lot of places in the Northeast and the Midwest where the population is moving away from that are really going to struggle here Mm -hmm. in a a few years. But but to get back to your original question uh, about the growth in applications, all of that stuff, plus the media coverage, which typically fixates on the most well-known schools, the the top 20 or 40 or 50 schools, which is um, based on these very subjective rankings. Mm -hmm. um, And we have a rankings obsessed society. So I'll share this one story with you that I think will illustrate the point. Um, I, a few years ago, I got a call from a student who um, had been admitted to TCU and to another institution. I'm not going to name the institution. And he wanted to, um, to, he wanted more scholarship money from us. And his negotiating ploy was that this other school he had been admitted to was ranked higher than TCU. And, um, and so I, I said, not in these exact words, by the way, but I said, basically, if you're too obtuse to understand that the difference between TCU and said school, based on this ranking, and we were like four spaces apart, based on this negligible difference, then you're probably better off going to this other school. Um, but, but people have got gone crazy over this stuff. Yes. And, and, and I think to be fair, at least from my perspective, having spoken to lots of your peers on previous podcasts over the last five years, I mean, school, university and college boards of trustees and, and higher administration have also gone nuts to the rankings. In other words, they know what feeds the monster, right? And so there have been strategic imperatives placed to move schools from right. 75 to 50 on the U.S. News World sure. Report, as, as banal as we know the ranking in and of itself to be in terms of truly indicating the worth of a of school or university. And so yes. there is some culpability, too, I suspect, uh, on the higher ed side. Matt Feeney, who I had on just before the holiday, for example, would be one who says, you know, this is this is the, the the finger to be pointed at the higher ed industry who continue to, again, stoke the fire or feed the monster yeah. by um, inviting more applications. Right. To, to raise application numbers and therefore drop their their admissions uh, rate to elevate their prestige and create 
demand from the consumer. That, that's exactly right. I think yeah. it goes, it, it's definitely, uh, there's definitely shared responsibility here. I worked at um, George Washington University for a few years. That's my alma mater. And I remember the first time that we hit the top 50 in the U.S. News and World Report annual ranking, the then president had buttons printed with our ranking on it and passed them out to everybody. We were all supposed to wear, wear this as a badge of honor, um, which, um, you know, in retrospect is, I think, extremely dangerous behavior. Um, and I'll say this about TCU and just to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. I think any, any university is foolish not to understand the composition of those rankings. What we have thought through is not how do we manipulate what we're doing to try to elevate our status here, but rather, what is it that we do well? How does that align with what's being measured? And let's really accentuate that. Let's highlight the areas of strength that we really have here as, as, uh, as an institution. But you're 100% right. There are um, places like Northeastern University, um, has done this exceedingly well. And there was an article written up about them, oh, five or 10 years ago in um, Boston, uh, Boston Magazine um, about how they strategically went about this. Their president was really clear with everybody that this is the goal and here's how we're going to do it. And they yeah. did. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, even entrepreneurially, but they've got great programming too. They you know are really able to kind of run with the fast horses that surround them yeah. right there. So, I mean, I think we would say the pandemic... Um, what fuel suppressant negligible in, in this and and uh, what what's your sense like I think it already had a lot of momentum is this a grand reset or caused by the p- pandemic or something that's that's it was already already flying well I think what what the pandemic has um, has illuminated uh, for all of us is that we exist in a a, a real bifurcated ecosystem. Um, and you have the haves and the have nots, and that has accelerated over the last two right. years. Um, it's, it's accelerated some of what Nathan Graw was already talking about in his book. Um, but we can see this in, in a number of ways. On, on, on the one hand, you see schools um, that are in the TCUs of the world, right? The schools that we compete with, um, we saw a massive increase in applications over the last couple of years. Um, largely fueled by the test optional movement, which we're pro- I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about because that's fresh on everyone's mind. But also, um, uh, but also on the other side, you saw far fewer and see still far fewer students applying for financial aid. So students who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum are not uh, applying to schools like they did pre-pandemic. And this is a big problem. Mm. And the schools that tend to enroll low-income mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. Are, are having problems as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't think it's, it's wow. as clear. I don't think it's um, fuel or suppressant. I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's a whole nother stretch because that's fascinating. And a lot of schools uh, like Hamilton and others are really trying to get more Pell students into their yep. schools and Pell students come with federal support uh, tuition wise. And in other words, looking to diversify socioeconomically their base and you're getting this barbell effect, again, not dissimilar to what a place like Parrish is facing where you have your full pay families and you have your aid families and that middle-class family 
broadly defined now six figure families being squeezed out of the experience of a private uh, independent school like mine or a college like yours. Mm -hmm. And so demographically, you know, what are we going to look like in the next generation becomes a, a really challenging uh, question for boards uh, and, and probably for another conversation. But the other reset that I did explore with Sarah, you you, uh, you mentioned, and that is this idea of, of test test optional, which, which plays into somewhat this, uh, for parents, this, this opaque, difficult to discern uh, set of variables that go into the selection process, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it, it Jeff Salingo's recent book, I think, nailed the title, right? Like, who gets in and why? It was like, who got in and why? Like, why did she get in and he didn't? When I compare them based on what I see as a parent at my sending school, right? Like, so what meets the eye doesn't always meet the, uh, you know, meet with the logic of families. So part of this is around the notion now of how schools are using standardized tests. So tell us uh, from your vantage point, your side of the desk, what the benefits of test optional are, what it means, and what impact you're seeing it have in your industry for the good uh, or not, and whether you think it's going to last yeah. uh, or not. Well, let, let's start from this idea of, you mentioned sort of the opaqueness yeah. of our process. I think that necessarily leads to anxiety. Yes. Um, whether, whether we include test scores or not, whether we factor in letters of recommendation or not, if you don't have a cut and dried system whereby a student can go online and see with this set of variables, I will get in, there will be anxiety in the process. And the fact is that it is far more difficult to predict outcomes that college admission offices are going to make today than it was a generation ago. And so the parents who, when they were applying, had a pretty good sense based on grades and scores if they were going to get in or not, are now clueless and their, their kids are feeling the anxiety that the parents are, are exhibiting. So, um, so I, on behalf of my colleagues everywhere, I apologize to the parents at Parish and everywhere. Um, so, so let's explain test optional first. Test optional means that a, an admission office is giving the applicant a choice as to whether standardized exams will be used in the assessment of that student's application. That is different from a similar movement called test-free or test-blind, which is it doesn't matter if you submit test scores, we're not looking at it anyway. Um, and you have seen over the course of the last two years, a, um, a hastening of a process that had begun long ago. Right. So test optional is not actually new. Right. It's been around for a long, long time. I think the first uh, college uh, I think Bowdoin might have been the very first college. Yeah, or University of Chicago or somebody well, in that next ne yeah. was about a decade, about a decade ago, right? Decade. Well, the, the original ones actually go back several decades. Huh. A lot of the smaller schools were doing this. A lot of the NESCAC type schools were doing it yeah. way back when. Yeah. Um, but you did see Chicago go test optional yeah. prior to the pandemic. And, and, you, and, and you started to see some of the bigger name national universities do this. Why? Lots of reasons why. Um, but I think the, at the core of it is this idea that 
the standardized test had become so far outsized in its impact, or at least its perceived impact, mm. um, when in fact an admission office can learn almost everything it needs to know about a student's academic preparation <clears throat> and potential by looking at the high school transcript that schools said, we don't want to deal with this behemoth, which by the way, causes massive inequity in the, in the system right. in trying to craft incoming classes that are reflective of society around us mm-hmm. that we said, let's just, let's just do away with it. And, and so for, I think the schools that went test optional, they're saying, look, if you as a student believe that, your performance on the SAT or the ACT is reflective of your ability and will enhance your profile, by all means, go ahead and submit those scores. If you don't feel that way and you believe that we can more easily assess your abilities by looking at other facets of your application, mm-hmm. that's, that's fine too. So we are now in year two of test optional at TCU, two, year two of a three-year pilot. Mm-hmm. And like many schools, when the pandemic hit, we went away from the test mm-hmm. because the administrations were being canceled left and right with mm-hmm. no sign as to when they'd be back on board. So we felt like to be good partners with the high school communities and our, and our um, consumers, uh, namely students, we needed to come out with a, a message early on and, um, and say for this period of time, in, in our case, three years, we're going to, no pun intended, test it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and see what the results are. And if, in fact, we are able to achieve the mission of the university and still enroll a, a, a high-quality uh, first-year class without the use of standardized tests, um, then we will do that. So we are in the process right now of um, testing the efficacy of that, uh, of that policy. And probably a year from now, we'll have some uh, more permanent statement on it. So that's really, and whether it's a reset that lasts is probably in the industry a TBD. Um, if you have a if you have a, a student like as you do uh, with Levin graduating in 2025, like you probably really want to be paying attention because there's going to be a lot of moving parts here over the next several years as schools like yours are discerning where to go with it. But it sounds like your bottom line advice to a parent is send it if you think it helps, right? Like rather than a rule of thumb. If, yeah. if this, then it's like, if you think it augments your pro- student's profile, send it, send it in. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, first of all, just to go back and I, I didn't answer the question you initially laid out. I do think it's here to stay. Ah. Um, I, I don't think we're going to go back to the time where it's going to be required. The test scores are going to be required mm-hmm. certainly by all universities. Right. Um, there may be some holdouts. Um, and for certain schools and in certain academic programs, it might make a whole lot of sense to require those tests. But I really don't think it's going to be here um, forever for all schools. Um, or, I, or rather, I should say, I think the test optional will be uh, long lasting. Part of that will be just what the market demands. So I'll give you a really concrete example. At TCU, we typically will enroll about 15% of our undergraduate students from the state of California. We have more Californians than any other college in the state of Texas. And we have more Californians than any private school in the country, except for three schools. Okay, so that is a huge piece to our enrollment puzzle. You might know that the University of California system and the Cal State University system have done away with the test. They have said, we are no longer even going to look at these results. 
And they tend that to be means, a lighthouse for the rest of the country when a system that large makes that kind of decision, right? As the UC system goes, so goes the rest of the country. Right. And if they have made that choice, we would be foolish to cut off an arm here at the university. So even if we felt like, you know what, pedagogically, we believe in these exams. And I don't think that there is a a groundswell of support for that here. But even if we did, we might be forced to ignore them anyway. Yes. And that, and that really, you would not be alone as an institution facing that same reality with a system as large as California, exporting as many students as they are across the, you know, across the country and especially the Metroplex. Right. Uh, even Dr. Turner has told me they, they could, they, they, they could have an entire freshman class of Californians should they wish to, as a, as you obviously could too, having as many applications as you have. So we've hit on a bunch of factors here that are at system level, right? Um, raising a number of enrollments, whether the reasons are demographic and, under, and understandable or perhaps a little bit more back room, uh, the, where, where this demographic trend is, is going, the pressure and anxiety that exists. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk, I think, in, in rounding this all out around systemic change and whether you're bullish or bearish on it. Like, I, my career is, is, is ending in schools. Like I'm toward the end of my career and I, and I will go down, I suspect a little bit um, as, as a failed Pollyanna. Like I wanted to try to make a school like Parrish a friendly version of a college preparatory place. Like I had seen it over the course of my career, not Parrish per se, our industry of independent schools uh, lose the battle around joyful learning. Uh, because of this inherent anxiety existing for so many reasons, primarily around the college admissions game. And so the levels of anxiety and stress and wellness challenges that young people are facing on my campus, they're facing on your campus and across the country on like campuses, I think has been very much driven by this fixation on 50 to 75 colleges in an ecosystem of a couple thousand place universities and colleges that could serve our kids by high achieving families. And I think that really the only way that this is going to change and the reason we sort of failed at some of the initiatives we tried here at Parrish to make it saner because people were like, you can make it saner, but that's not going to get my kid. He still needs to take eight APs to get into place A, B, and C because that's what yeah. the colleges are telling us. Like the only way that it's going to change is like a wholesale systemic change. If we want learning at my place, any pre-collegiate place to be less transactional, less outcome focused, is that colleges and uh, college boards, presidents, admissions leaders need to kind of join us in shifting the conversation. And so there are initiatives like the Mastery Transcript Consortium of a couple hundred schools, private and public like Parish, we're associated with. They're trying to stimulate conversations around the change of transcript and more authentic presentations of students to you. And I think it's cool and I get a little idealistic and excited and then I'm like candle in a tornado, right? Like it just <laughs> yeah. isn't going to change. So you've been in the business a while in independent schools like mine at, a, at an elite higher ed. Do you see any possible resets on the horizon where colleges and universities as a collective May, may depressurize the situation by going to, as you alluded to earlier, just a more transparent admissions process or any other kind of systemic change that might relieve some of the pressure in the pre-collegiate space? <laughs> um, I, I, I hate to be a downer here, 
Um, <laughs> Look, I'm but, already down on it. Man. You, can't, <laughs> you can't down me anymore. He. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm rather bearish on it. Um, yeah. And I, it, it's not that I don't think that some things can be done. Um, I just think systemic change like this is really challenging when you have 3,500 independent actors. You see, we talk in terms of what the college admissions world should do, but we're not a single world. Um, I can't just right. you know, get with my colleagues and make a decision independent of what our, um, our presidents and boards and faculty would like to do. Um, and, and so it makes it rather uh, difficult. Um, and, and you're 100% right in what this does to, an, to a high school community, to an independent school community in particular. I remember when I worked at Hockaday um, in the college counseling office, I would, with some degree of frequency, meet with parents of eighth grade students who, and they were trying to decide whether they should send their girls to Hockaday or to a, another school. Forever, right. So, so, and how do they base that decision? College admission outcomes. Right. And I would say to them, if you're basing your decision on where these girls will end up going to college, you've got it all wrong. You need to base it on the education they're getting here because the fact of the matter is a Hockaday and a parish, and you, you name the school in, in, in your milieu, um, you're getting such a strong college preparatory experience that whether you end up going to a top 20 or 30 or 50 school or any number of other schools, you're going to excel. And, and I'm sure, Dave, that you hear this. I would hear this routinely from girls who would come back after their first year at Stanford, Princeton, Duke, MIT, and say, this was a breeze compared to what I experienced junior and senior year at Hockaday. So, so you're right. Um, and, and I remember having a conversation once with an upper school head at an independent school. And he said to me, you know, all, all these families want are the keys to the kingdom. And I said, you know, I got to push back a little bit there because I think the anxiety around the college admission process, while very um, central to what we all talk about on a daily basis, it doesn't exactly end there. Because then when you get to the top school, it's about, can I get to the top law school? And can I make it to, and can I be law review? And can I get to the best firm? And I'm on the partner track. And like, when does it, when does it ever end? So to, to go back to your question, I really think that college admission is merely a reflection of society. Hmm. And until society stops valuing that which is in scarce supply, i.e. highly selective colleges, we have this, what, what did I say? We're going to 4 million students who are graduating from high school. It's not like um, all of these schools at the top of the food chain are expanding their entering classes by that same percentage. So you have the scarcity issue and everyone is, is trying to fight for those few spots and they're willing to shell out gobs of money for it, by the way, um, until we see a change in our societal approach, I, I just don't know what exactly these individual actors can do. Now, having said that, I do think that there are some things that, um, that schools can do to, to try to make a difference, at least in their own communities. And I'll give you a, a concrete example, a couple of them. One is a couple of years ago, 
um, we were evaluating here at TCU how it is that we assess students' curriculum rigor. You mentioned earlier the need or the perceived need to take eight AP classes. Well, do we really need students to take eight AP classes? Uh, the answer is no, definitively no. Um, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill did a study about 10 or 12 years ago where they looked at their students based on the number of incoming advanced courses that they had. And what they determined and this is, and this is um, something that has largely been corroborated by the college board itself, is that if a student has taken about five or six AP classes, they've demonstrated they could do college level work. And there is really no marginal utility to taking eight, 12, 15 AP classes, aside from um, students who are looking to get AP credit so that they can maybe graduate early and, and save money. So there certainly is value there. But in terms of being ready to achieve at a very high level, you don't need to take 25 AP classes. So what we did in our process is we said, we are going to score students' curricula and give students who have at least a five, you know, five or six advanced classes, whatever it is, whatever that means at your school, IB, AP, dual credit, whatever, you're going to get the maximum score possible. You're not going to get any higher score just because you took uh, more AP classes. And, we, and we've broadcast that to our community. Um, now, we're just one school, so we, we can't make a, exactly. a, a but, right. but if enough schools do sure, this sort of sure. thing, then yeah. you start to make some headway. I'll give you another example. Um, and uh, it, it, I believe it was Amherst College that just announced um, recently that they're doing away with legacy admission. Right. Um, I applaud that decision. I think, uh, I think legacy admission is, um, pr should probably be put to bed. It's past time we, we do that. Um, and if more colleges did that, that might create a little bit more sanity and a little bit more sense of fairness in the, in the process. So yeah, a, few more, like, a few more seats at some of those select places and for yeah. sure the smaller, the smaller places. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, none of this really begins to address the massive inequity that we're talking about or the, or the, or the, um, you know, the craziness, the, the anxiety, the fear and so forth that, that we're talking about. But um, so that's why, why I'm a little bearish. But I think there are some some ways that we can um, tweak around the edges. Yeah, I like that idea tweaking around the edges. We certainly have tried it here. And I think bent the bar as far as, you know, kind of as far as, as we can. And let's not forget, at the end of the day, you and I are both charging significant tuitions. And as mm -hmm. our tuitions has, have risen, so so have certain expectations that are um, easily distillable to outcome, right? So in our, the case of independent schools like Parish or Hockaday, you already referenced it. It's like, what college am I going to get into? I'm paying X for that Y. And, you know, you've got the same ones in terms of uh, whether it's earnings of, of uh, your graduates when they get out or graduate school placements or what have you. Everybody's, again, looking for the transaction because they're making a yeah. huge investment for our services. And so, you know, that that's part and parcel of it. And and uh, and I think it's a difficult thing to, to unwind. So, uh, look, I think there are a lot of adults in this world that are upside down and jobs they don't truly love because they've come to them because they've been on that treadmill you referenced. You know, and so, again, if, if we don't stop the treadmill somewhere, like mm -hmm. people leading authentic lives plugged into work, that connects to their souls is going to be increasingly difficult to do. 
And that's what that's that's at the end of the day, what gets me a little depressed. Like, I think I just, you know, continue to talk about it and people will nod their heads. Right. Affirmation. Like, wow, that's really powerful. When I talk to prospective parents, for example, you've probably heard me give the pitch as a prospective parent. Like, (laughs) yeah, you heard it. It was like, wow, that's what I want school to feel like about flourishing and more joyful and more authentic. And then at the same time, once they get there and they're in and the sausage is getting made, they quickly flip to to the outcome, you know, and yeah. that's I think, where it's really difficult. So before we let you go, and as a prospective parent now uh, about to get into the process, you got one piece of advice for an anxious parent sitting out there with a freshman, sophomore, or junior, one piece of advice. It is, it is Heath Einstein's like crystal, crystal goblet of advice on the college um, process to come. What, what is that sage piece of wisdom? Okay, here's here's what it all boils down to, Dave. Um, a parent's responsibility, ultimately, they only have one responsibility in this college admission process, and that is to love their children. That's it. Because, and this goes back to the point you just made, if a student believes that their parents' affection for them mm-hmm. is tied mm-hmm. to the outcome of this process, and we've seen that happen before, then that causes irreparable harm to that relationship. If on the other hand, the parent says, I love you, I support you, and I know that we have given you this fantastic education up to this point that will prepare you for success wherever you end up going, that college will be lucky to have you and we will love having you there. That's what, that's what it's all about. A parent has to continually remind students of that over and over and over again, especially um, in junior and senior year when when the pressure really uh, ratchets up. And that's wisdom that can only come from the son of a rabbi right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And I, I completely embrace that. It's their journey, not ours, parents. And, you know, again, if love is seen as transactional on top of everything else in this process that is, is indicative of transaction, then we all got a problem. So brilliant wisdom from you. Keep loving your kids. Let the journey take them where they're going to go, regardless of where they end up. It's an awesome place like TCU or another awesome place that they get into. Um, schools and universities out there want our children to come to them and they will find a great place. So great wisdom. Awesome hanging out with you. Good luck with your admission season. I know you're in the heart of it. So uh, best of luck finding an awesome class to come on over to Fort Worth and, uh, and hang out in Cowtown at TCU. Thank you, Dave. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, my friend. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will enjoy another Parish Connection session, revisiting for a final time the grade level expansion with founding head of Upper School Dave Davies, and I hope another guest or so who will further our insights and perspectives on that remarkable reset in the history of Parish Episcopal School. Until then, thank you for listening to the From My Angle podcast.